Justin Shears and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. does country western music have? Do you think it has a great influence? On our music? Um, yes, you know, we've, we've sort of been fans of a lot of country and western people for a long time, especially people like Carl Perkins, who are sort of semi-country western people. Um, yeah, yeah, we all like it, and apparently some of the fellows from country and western country, like Memphis and Nashville, you know, that we've talked to, said that our music sounds a little bit like it. It's a bit influenced. Probably is, you know. No. We're backstage once again, and with me I have Ringo Starr. Ringo, uh, last night uh, you sent a tape to some friends in Liverpool after a little bash session with a Bill Black combo. Now, That's correct. That's, that is correct. Tell me, you, you, you like this country western music. I see that you do. What? influence did it have, if any, on your original uh, sound, let's say? On our sound, I don't think any. I just like it, you know, I've always liked it, and I used to sort of play it before I played rock. And um, I, I, I just like it. I like all the stories the songs have, you know. The Beatles, and in particular Ringo, were well known for their love of country and western music. It had formed part of the backbone of their early stage sets, and the band had recorded and released several country and rockabilly numbers to date. If George Harrison had been in the giant songwriting shadow cast by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Ringo was nowhere to be seen. He had been given a vocal spot on most albums to date, some of which were cover versions, some were Lennon and McCartney cast-offs, and some had been written specifically with Ringo in mind. Ringo did have a songwriting credit to his name, albeit alongside John and Paul's, for What Goes On from Rubber Soul in 1965, although his contribution to the actual writing of the song was minimal. But this didn't stop Ringo, and the song that he brought to the studio in June 1968 can actually be traced back much further, as these interviews from 1964 show. any chance that either Ringo or George is going to start writing some songs? As far as uh, Ringo and I are concerned, we'll oh. leave the song writing. Excuse me, Paul. Ringo. I'm going to sing the one I've written. No, I can't, re I can't quite remember it. Well, no, just, but even so, just for a plug, we've just... Ringo uh, has written one called... <laughs> don't Pass Me By, Don't Make Me Cry, Don't Make Me Blue. A beautiful oh, you know, melody. Sincere, so That's it, yes. In fact, I'm going to get a tape of him singing it for me, a very own. Are the Beatles <laughs> going to record it? 
I don't know. You never know. Well, I don't think so, actually. I keep trying to push it on them every time we make a record. And we always try and do it. Unluckily, <laughs> there's never quite enough time to fit Ringo's song on. <laughs> because he never finishes it. Isn't finished? It's finished. It's finished. We've finished it. Such a finished finish. Ringo, why don't you give it to the Rolling Stones? Well, answer that, Ringo. I, 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 don't, I refuse to answer that one. I don't think I'm I'm not going to answer that one. I think I'm not going to answer that one. I think I'm not going to answer that one. I think I'm not going to answer that one. Pinches off all other tunes, you know. <laughs> Ringo, how about your songwriting? How's that coming on? Oh yes, I, I've written a good one, you see, but yes. no one seems to want to record no. it. No. Oh, Paul, maybe got to... on and no. Off. Yes, Paul, you no, promised. We... Okay. Oh. No, the oh, thing Paul. is, I was doing the tune for you to sing it. No, I don't want to sing. You sing. Don't pass me by. Oh, you do. Rhythm and blues song. Oh yeah. Don't pass me by. Don't make me cry. Don't make me blue, baby. Because <laughs> you know why. Oh, I got the ice cream for you. Yeah, oh, it's a sensation. You wrote all those words? Yeah, blues and all that. He's a Dylan Thomas of Liverpool, isn't he? It used to be just hard, you know, to bring your songs in when you had Lennon and McCartney. And uh, and it used to be a bit of a joke, really, because I would bring these songs I'd written in, and they'd all be rolling on the floor laughing because, you know, I'd rewritten an old standard again. <laughs> you know, I was great at rewriting Jerry Lee Lewis songs. <laughs> Don't make me cry, don't make me blue Cause you know, darling 
An edit of takes three and five of what was called Ringo's tune, in brackets, untitled. The first of two working titles for Don't Pass Me By, which is baffling considering that the actual title had been openly spoken about since 1964. Recorded on the 5th of June 1968, only two Beatles were directly involved in the session. And it may come as a surprise that Ringo didn't actually play drums on his own song, instead playing the piano through a Leslie speaker to give it some wobble, leaving drumming duties to Paul. John was in the studio, but didn't contribute to the recording. Take three was marked as best, and Ringo added his vocal to the tape, and Paul overdubbed his bass part. Tape Productions brought the song to take five, where it would rest until the next day. On the 6th of June, Don't Pass Me By was treated to fresh bass and vocal overdubs, take seven of which was considered best, and briefly retitled This Is Some Friendly. Listen carefully to the end of the track, to find out why. I listen for your footsteps coming up the drive. Listen for your footsteps, but they don't arrive. Waiting for you not dear on my old front door. I don't hear it. Does it mean you don't look?
me rise, I want you to make me cry, I want you to make me happy, happy, happy. Cause that's what I want. This is some friendly. Take seven of Don't Pass Me By. With three of the four tracks now full, one track was left free for a very country and western overdub. But at this point, the song would be shelved for over a month. On the morning of the 6th of June, the world awoke to shocking news from the United States, where the unthinkable had happened overnight. So I thank thank all of you who made this possible this evening. So I thank all of you, those of you who are here. Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. So uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you. hit you about once a week now, mm. bang, yeah. and then you say, oh, oh, well, and then you're back to, well, get on with it, you know, get on with it. And laugh? Well, I mean, there are laughs to compensate, because if there weren't, I mean, it'd be very melancholy. John interviewed for BBC Television in Studio 3, mainly to discuss the upcoming stage play adapted from his book In His Own Right, which was due to premiere at the Old Vic Theatre on the 18th. While Paul and Ringo worked on Don't Pass Me By in Studio 2, John had been busily at work next door compiling sound effects tapes for the theatre production. In stark contrast, 
Old friend and BBC radio DJ Kenny Everett also visited Abbey Road on this day to capture an interview with John about what the band had been up to. So I'll stand, I'll stand uh, down Avenue Road. You saw me better turn the guitaring down a bit later. So, Kenny, how are you going? Oh, it's wonderful. Listen, um, first a few questions, then I'd like you to sing me a jingle, a goodbye jingle. Okay, goodbye jingle. Um, uh, oh, yeah, what, what can we expect from you in the next few months? I've heard you're working on it. Uh, a lot of brown paper bags, Kenny, actually. Yeah. We're working very hard on that at the moment. Boys and me. Anything tuny? Oh yeah, there's a lot of tunes that we found in the bags actually. I, I got told that uh, you don't actually come in here with the idea of doing an album. It just sort of falls out of one of the sessions. Mm, well, we have a vague idea, you know, Ken. Yes. As I was only saying the other day, we had a vague idea, but very vague. What's all? Very vague. <laughs> Just a bit of laughter, ladies and gentlemen. Have you done any actual complete numbers? No. We're halfway through the second incomplete number now. Yeah. You don't actually do them whole complete and then finish with them and then start well, another one? See, like, we've got to a stage with one where the next bit is musicians, so oh. we'll have to write the musicians bit, you see. Uh. Oh, you see, see. Do you ever get to, um, you've done your bit and you decide it would be good on its own and then forget the musicians? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody stole my gown. Somebody stole my gown. Wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there any particular record ours at the moment? Oh, yeah, let me think. Nielsen. One of Nielsen's. Which one, particularly? Uh, As you know, we've played quite a few of them. Yes, so let me think, Ken, for the moment. Ah. Uh, <laughs> River Deep. Mountain Dew. Yeah. When I was a little baby, my mama used to smash me in the cradle, picking those old cotton fields back home. Oh, cotton fields. When mama was a little bitty baby, she used to smash me in my cradle. When I was a little bitty baby, back home. That was impresario John Lennon playing for you. And now... A few words from him. And there goes some daddy story I told you. So that's what India taught you. Exactly. <laughs> Have you got anything to say uh, that our listeners would understand? <laughs> How about good morning? About uh, anything you've recorded so far? Something that they'll comprehend? No, dear, we've just done two tracks, both unfinished. And, uh, the second one's Ringo's first song that we're working on this very moment. Exactly, he composed it himself? He composed it himself in a fit of lethargy. And what do you think about it? I think it's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard since Niels's River Deep and Mountain Dew. <laughs> well, that's about 30 seconds worth. <laughs> No, there's half there's an LP out of this, Ken. There's an LP. Hey, listen, you said Ken Everett. It's the Kenny Everett show. 
composing this straight out of your head? This is ad nauseum, straight from the mouth of Bitney. I you? don't know how he does it, friends. Neither do I, friends. He sit here cross-legged on the amplifier, <laughs> strumbling away. Guruing. I hope we're going to hear this, listeners, because we have a lot of fun doing them, but never quite hear them, listeners. Never quite hear them when you get home. Well, I will play this completely all the way through, just right. for you. As the other band members arrive in the studio, Kenny tries to snag an exclusive jingle that he could use on his final weekly radio program for the BBC. The Beatles were only too happy to help. Late in the evening session of the 6th of June, 12 takes of sound effects were assembled by John, including selections from the EMI sound effects collection, with titles such as Vicar's Poems, Queen's Mess, Come Dancing Combo, Neville Club and Theatre Outing. On the 7th of June, George and Ringo flew to the USA, staying for 11 days, the first time that any Beatle had not been in the country while recording sessions were in progress. Having laid down Revolution 1 in late May, early June, and with tape loops and sound effects prepared both at home and in the studio, John moved into Studio 3 in the afternoon of the 10th of June to start assembling a sound montage that, 
upon release would be unlike any other Beatles recording. John explains. Revolution number nine was a was an unconscious picture of what what it's what I actually think will happen when it happens. You know, that was just a, like a a drawing of of revolution. You know, wow. so I was hoping what because arbitrarily I was making all the thing was made with loops. I had about thirty loops going and fed them onto one basic track. And one loop there, I just got, I was getting like Beethoven and that from upstairs and chopping it up and making it backwards and things like that to get sound effects. And one thing was an engineer's test thing, and they come on talking. I'd say, "This is EMI test series number nine, you know, like that." So I just cut off whatever he said. Now number nine, nine is I know it turned out to be my birthday and my lucky number and everything, but I didn't realize it, it was just so funny. The voice went number nine. So it was like a joke, you know, bringing number nine in all the time. That's all it was. Turns out to be that. Highest number, among, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, yeah, it's, it's all, many symbolic things about it, but it just happened, you know, that it was an engineer's tape, and I was just using every, all the, the bits, like to make a montage, you know. But I, I really wanted that out, you know. But never mind. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Number nine, 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 number Number nine, number nine, number nine, 
number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Thank you. 
A rare mono mix of Revolution 9 as it stood at the end of the 20th of June 1968. Over time, a total of 15 tape loops were prepared and distributed across all three studios at Abbey Road and fed simultaneously from the various individual tape machines onto a single tape. The same technique used to add the tape loops to Tomorrow Never Knows two years earlier. Three takes were needed to achieve what was called a master, which would then have material from the Revolution 1 session added to it, and then be edited down to the final mix ready for release. John would later reflect upon how the others must have felt about the track and the battles he had to even get it released. See, I like uh, on the Beatles' double album, Revolution Number 9 is the, the track I'm interested in, you know? It, uh, I had to impose that on them, really. And you had to cut a, a little, too. I had to, you know. really good part <laughs> that you had to cut. I was just putting it together, you know, and George and Ringo were nipping about getting tapes and cutting them and all that, you know. And we were just doing it. I just felt as though, I felt maybe it was my paranoia, I just felt as though I'd imposed it on them, you know, on the Beatle product. You know. I remember the last minute you were, you said, well, uh, it has to be a bit short because... Yeah, you know, yeah, it's just like that. I had to sort of... It would occupy too much space, you know, that, you know, so considering the that, I'll do, that. If I want to do that, I'll do it separately, and then there's no messing. See, uh, while they were all the Beatles on holiday, uh, we'd started doing Revolution, uh, the song Revolution, which is on the album, and I wanted to put that out, and Revolution number nine was the B-side, you know. And... It was just literally the others wouldn't let me. I said, look, I want to put this out as the next Beatles single. And they said, well, we don't think it's a single, you know. So I said, oh, all right. And I redid Revolution, and, and by then Hey Jude had come along. And I managed to get it on the other side of Hey Jude. But what I wanted out was the message, you know. Mm. Not the song, just the message. And I wanted it out when I wrote it, as near to it. I like to get it out as I think it, you know. What was its message? Non-violence, you know. I mean, it got a lot of people uptight, but that's what I was saying. The 11th of June 1968 is a great example of how the Beatles were working at this time. With George and Ringo away in the US, John and Paul were in different studios within Abbey Road, doing very different things. George Martin recalls. And um, they wanted to record their own songs, independently at the same time virtually impossible so i would be perhaps working with paul in one studio 
Jerome will be working out his ideas in another, and George will be with Chris Thomas in another one. And that was a strange time, and it kind of eroded the, the way we used to work. As John continued to assemble the tapes for Revolution 9 in Studio 3, Paul was in Studio 2, sitting on the bottom step of the stairwell that leads from the studio floor to the control room. One microphone for his guitar, one for his vocal, and one trained on his shoe as he tapped out the beat to accompany himself on the studio floor. Paul was recording what is considered to be one of his most beautiful songs. Like John's revolution, it had its genesis in political and social struggle. Well, the music came from... um, I used to play a kind of chord version of a Bach piece. I used to play a little um, kind of finger-picking thing on that. And so the music was inspired by that. Um, And then the words were actually to do with the civil rights movement. I was imagining Blackbird being symbolic for a young black woman living in America at the time, experiencing the injustices that were going on uh, then, particularly. And this was um, hopefully to be an inspirational song where, you know, even though she was going through all these terrible times, she would be able to look uh, and listen to this song and uh, be inspired by it to um, continue to fight against the injustices.
I think, you know, I just sort of forgot the format. Yeah, right. Earphones with a bit of echo would be too much to sing it. Yeah, I feel as though I'm in the factory a bit, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I wasn't really consciously trying to make a master track of you. I'm just trying to get a track for discussion of what you want to do with it, because really... You just do it great like that. That's it. You want it to be like that? Well, if it's a minute long, that's enough of a minute. It doesn't get boring, then. You see, I imagined if you got if you got that sound there really crystal clear... things about music is that you know that a lot of people listening to you are going to 
take seriously what you're saying in the song. So I, I'm very proud of the fact that the Beatles' output um, is always really pretty positive. And there's hardly anything in there that sort of says, go and screw your parents or whatever. You know, it's always pretty, let it be, hey Jude, Blackbird. So it's hopefully a good message. I particularly like that. And you, sometimes when I'm writing songs, um, I will think there's people out there who are going through some problems. And hopefully um, people out there will listen to it and think, oh yeah, it's not just me alone going through this. You know, this is something and also something I can fix. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You are only waiting for this moment to arrive Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the light the dark black Keep a few that you think are worth it, you know. Uh, see, if we're ever to reach it, I'll be able to tell you when I've just done it. I don't know, you know. I should think. I should think so. It just needs forgetting about it. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's a decision which voice to use, you know. I think it's better quieter. I do too. Early rehearsals and take 28 of Blackbird. Take 32 would be the master take a solo performance which would be a standout track on the new LP and a part of Paul McCartney's live repertoire for decades to come. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, more sessions from the Beatles' White Album. Until next time... <laughs>